The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. So what are we going to do this week? Well, I have gotten a lot of very nice emails from you guys saying that you enjoyed when I told stories. And since I couldn't find anyone interesting to interview this week, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I've got some funny anecdotes about uh, television, you know, some things where I'm humiliated or not respected. And also, since the baseball season is really heating up, I'm going to share some baseball bloopers that announcers have made, yes, me included. They're pretty hilarious, and I think there's a few that you have never heard before. So that's this week. Everybody gather around the old campfire, and Kenny's going to tell you some stories starting now. Hollywood and the Vine. Getting script notes are never easy, especially when you're starting out in your career, when you're a young freelance writer, and you finally get an assignment and you get second draft notes, you know, you're trying to impress, and it's really tough when you get crushed by a note session. And for David and I, this was probably our worst. There was a show in like 1975, 76 called The Practice, And it's not the practice that you remember, the David E. Kelly show. No, this was a half-hour sitcom starring Danny Thomas. And I've talked about this a little bit before on the podcast. Essentially, it was Becker, where he was this irascible doctor in New York. And, of course, Danny Thomas was great at it. He was very funny. It was a very good show, and it was created by Steve Gordon, Steve Gordon, of course, went on to write and direct Arthur and tragically died very young. But he created The Practice. And David and I were very excited because we got an episode. Well, this was season two of The Practice. And by then, Steve Gordon was kind of commuting back and forth between Los Angeles and New York. He wasn't there as the day-to-day showrunner. And instead... It was Paul Witt and Tony Thomas. Tony Thomas is Danny Thomas's son. So we write an episode, and we thought, you know, let's do something kind of fun for Tony. That Tony's going to get a kick out of this. When Danny Thomas did Make Room for Daddy for many, many years, the tag of those shows 
were always commercials. You know, Danny would come into the kitchen and talk about the episode or whatever happened the night before and then would say, boy, I really need a pick-me-up. And his wife, Marjorie Lord, would say, well, what you need is post-raisin bran. Mmm, this post-raisin bran is great with double the raisins and the bran is really crispy. And yes, you're right. It makes me feel so much better. Thank you, post-raisin bran. And then Danny would turn to the camera and say, well, that's our show for tonight. And we will see you next week for Maxwell House. And that was the tag every week for like 20 years. So we thought what we would do is an alternate tag. We did the real tag, but then we added this alternate tag. And like I said, he was a doctor. And the scene takes place in the hospital doctor's lounge. And he and his son are sitting there having a couple of cups of coffee. And Danny starts talking about how good this Maxwell House coffee is. And we do a whole Maxwell House coffee commercial. And then he turns to the camera and he goes, well, that's our show for tonight. Tune in again next week when we'll be brought to you by Post Cereals. So we turn this in and we go to get our note session. Steve Gordon is not there. He's in New York. So it is just Paul and Tony Thomas. And you could see right from the very beginning, they did not love our draft. You just had that feeling in your bones that you were going to get hammered. And the first thing that Tony said to us was, what, what the fuck is this alternate tag? What is this about? We thought, okay, we are so fucked now. But I said, well, you know, it's kind of like an homage to make room for daddy when he used to do those, you know, commercials for the tag every time. He just looked at me stone-faced like, why did you do that? And we said, well, we just kind of thought it'd be funny. We kind of did it for your benefit. I don't remember them doing that. Well, yeah, they did. Well, we can't use any of this. Well, yeah, Tony, we know, but we were just kind of doing it as a joke. You got a real tag. It's not like we did this instead of the tag. Okay. So then they started giving us notes, and they were tough notes. You know, we don't like this, and I don't know about that. You know, we, we got handed our heads. And as we were leaving, everybody then threw their scripts down on the coffee table and we were saying, okay, uh, we can have it back for you next Friday or whatever. And I accidentally, instead of picking up my copy of the script, I picked up Tony's. So we get home and I start reading Tony's (laughs) notes on the script. And there were things like, lunch bit sucks. And he just had lines just slashed through things like awful, awful, terrible, awful. Oh, so we go off to do our second draft. And of course, we're demoralized. But then we get a call from Steve Gordon. And Steve Gordon said, uh, hey, guys, I just read your script. Oh, OK, <laughs> we already got a million notes, but OK. And he goes, what are you talking about? And I said, well. 
were doing a healthy rewrite. They pretty much hated everything up to and including the title page. Steve Gordon said, this is the best freelance script we've gotten in two years. Don't fuck with this script. Just leave it alone. He had a couple of tiny notes. And, of course, he was the guy. So we did it. And needless to say, we were thrilled and relieved. But before we got off the phone, I said to him, oh, wait, Steve, uh, what did you think of the lunch bit? And he goes, oh, lunch bit was funny. It was fine. Thank you very much. So we did those notes and we turned it in. Now your next question, of course, is going to be, well, how was our second draft received? The day we turned in our script, we noticed one of the head writers was just sitting out in the lobby chatting up the writer's assistant. We're figuring, man, it's 2.30 in the afternoon. He should be busy. What is this all about? We handed him the script. He said, thanks, guys. We'll get back to you. And we walked out and then found out that the show had been canceled 15 minutes before. So our episode never aired. You never got a chance to see the lunch bit, which, by the way, I agree with Steve Gordon. It did not suck. This is the coffee pot at work. Listen to it, Perk. Look at the coffee as it gets darker and stronger. Smell the honest coffee smell. Ah, smell it. But will this cup of coffee taste as good as it smells? You bet it will because it's Maxwell House. The coffee that tastes as good as it smells every time. Hollywood and the fine. Back in the day, people had a hard time believing that I worked on M.A.S.H., Now, maybe it was because I was 26, 27, 28 at the time, or maybe just the fact that people thought I was an idiot. But for whatever reason, I had a very difficult time convincing people that I actually did work on the television series MASH. And I remember going to my 10-year high school reunion, and a guy came up to me and said, Hey, is that you on MASH? And I said, Well, yes. He said, wow. He just shook his head and said, you know, I see your name every week and I just can't believe it's you. Thank you. Thank you very much. But this is one story. This is like one of those great stories that happen only a couple of times in your life. It's 1978. It's around Christmas time. And we had just completed a season of MASH. And yes, by the way, I did work on MASH that year. And we decided to go my wife and I, to a place called Keneal Bay, which is a resort on the island of St. John's in the Caribbean, and it's really, really nice. I don't know what it's like today. Back then, back in 1978, it was very rustic. It was very low-key, no frills. Everybody had their own huts. There was no telephone, no radio, no TV, no internet, no Facebook. But there were three or four 
gorgeous, pristine beaches, and the snorkeling was amazing. And like I said, it was all very low-key. At night, to get around, you all had flashlights, and everybody's like walking around lost, uh, looking for the big dining hall. And it was very communal in terms of dinner. Everybody went to one dining hall, and there were a number of gourmet entrees, but that's where everybody ate their breakfast, their lunch, and their dinner. There weren't 17 different restaurants and cafes and brasseries, and uh, there weren't any video arcades. There were no gift shops on the island. You basically slept, snorkeled, and ate. That was it. So my wife and I go there, and of course I'm kind of fried because it's the end of the year, and we're eating in the dining hall one night, with another couple, very nice young couple. I remember they were from Seattle, and he was a doctor. And he was telling me about uh, working in some hospital in Seattle, and he said to me, so what do you do? And I said, well, I'm one of the head writers of MASH. And he, like, went, (laughs) no, really, seriously, what what do you do? I said, no, I'm one of the head writers of MASH. And his wife looked at each other, and again, it's like, uh, okay, fine, don't tell me, you know, whatever. I said, no, seriously, I'm the head writer of MASH. You know, you want proof? Here's my wife. Yeah, he really is. There, what kind of proof do you need? Anyway, they did not believe me, and about 10 minutes later, I swear to God this is true, 10 minutes later, who comes into the dining hall but Alan Alda. That's right. Alan Alda decided to go to Keneal Bay as well. And I see him and I hold up my hand and I get his attention. And he and his wife see me and my wife, Debbie, and they go, oh, hey, it's Ken. And they come over to the table and it's hugs and kisses all around. And this couple is just gobsmacked. They're just sitting there. And I said, oh, here, uh, here's a, you know, doctor and Mrs. Rosenschlagel. And they, they just couldn't speak. And Alan was very nice. And he bought us all a bottle of wine. And like I said, one of those great moments. And it's kind of like, remember in Annie Hall, the scene where Woody Allen and Diane Keaton are standing in line at a movie theater and there's just some jack-off who is going on and on, so pretentious about Marshall McLuhan. And Woody Allen says, wouldn't you love to have Marshall McLuhan right there? And, of course, Marshall McLuhan shows up and says, you know nothing of my work. Well, it was one of those kind of moments. And, yes, you can check the credits. I really did work on M.A.S.H. Coming back with more Hollywood and Levine right after this. Sort of along the same lines, I hate it when people only like me because of what I do. And this is a story that goes back about 15, 16 years now. I was asked to speak at a radio convention. It was called the Conclave in Minneapolis. And back then, I was not really in radio. I think I was doing Dodger Talk that year. But it was a convention where the keynote speaker was going to be Kirby Puckett. And Kirby Puckett, now the late Kirby Puckett, was a Hall of Fame player for the Minnesota Twins. And so that was a a big get, except 
he did not want to prepare a whole speech. So what he said to the organizers was, I'm happy to be your keynote speaker if somebody just asks me questions. So they said, well, who do we know who actually knows Kirby Puckett and also knows radio? And somebody thought of me. So I got the call, said, would you come to Minneapolis? They'll pay for the expenses and the room and everything. And all you got to do is interview Kirby Puckett for a couple of hours. So I said, yeah, sure. Why not? Chance to go to Minneapolis in the summer? Yeah. So I go. And I arrive on Friday night, and the conference is supposed to start on Saturday, and there's a big welcoming cocktail party that Friday night. So I go to the cocktail party, but I don't really know anybody. Like I said, I was out of radio at that time. If this had been a convention in 1975, I would have known everybody, but this time, no. And it's all just a bunch of people trying to impress each other with their deep voice. Everybody was like, oh, talking like this. And, uh, you know, uh, we've added recurrence uh, in the 08 slot. And, you know, we're doing some sweepers now at the bottom of the hour. And we're finding that's really helping our PPMs. It's oh, bullshit. Anyway, I'm standing there with a drink in my hand. I don't know anybody. So I try to just kind of mingle and circulate and talk to people and say hello and maybe join a conversation or two and everybody's ignoring me. They're just completely ignoring me. Like, who the fuck is this idiot? I'm trying to get into the conversation and add something and they're just like glaring at me like, just go away, go away. So this happened about seven, eight times. I'm there like a half an hour And I decide, well, fuck this. Why bother? So I leave. And I go off to dinner by myself and whatever. And so the next morning is the keynote speech. And I arrive at 9 o'clock and I meet Kirby Puckett, who was very affable. And I said, what do you want to talk about? Anything specific? And he said, no, just ask some baseball questions. Like, okay, this could not be easier. And since it was Kirby Puckett, and since it was the keynote speech, the auditorium was packed. Everybody who had registered for the conference was there. So whoever it was who introduced us made a point of giving some of my credits. And my radio credits, you know, meant nothing to them, of course. Yeah, great, 10Q, great, KMPC, KFI, yeah, so what? But... Once you started listing my TV credits, you could see, like, suddenly there was a buzz in the room. Once they said MASH, that kind of got their attention. Cheers, their eyes kind of opened. And when he said, wrote for The Simpsons, oh, my God, you could hear just this almost gasp in the room. So now I do the keynote question and answer with Kirby Puckett, and it comes off very fun and very breezy. I don't know if anybody learned anything, but it came off great. And afterwards, I'm going up to the coffee shop to get something to eat, and now I am just swarmed by these guys. Like, 
all of these people that just shunned me the night before now are going, hey, uh, why don't you join us for lunch? Uh, we're happy to buy you lunch here on uh, Q96 Dime. Uh, you know, hey, you know, if you got some time, you know, I'd love to interview you here, uh, you know, for KWXXY. Uh, this happened for the rest of the weekend. And, of course, my feeling was... Fuck you guys. I didn't go out with any of them. I didn't have lunch with any of them. I went off by myself and watched a goddamn Minnesota Twins game. But again, they treated me like crap until they found out who I was. And that's kind of a shitty feeling. Back with more after this. When you are a baseball announcer, you are on the radio or TV live three hours a night. So it stands to reason that from time to time, you're going to goof up. You're going to make mistakes. It happens to all of us. Believe me, it has happened to me on any number of occasions. In fact, when I was in Baltimore my first year in the big leagues and I wrote a book about it, the title of my book was It's Gone, No, Wait a Minute which unfortunately was my signature home run call in the minor leagues. And the reason for that is simple. If you've ever seen any minor league games, you know that there's a lot of signage. There's billboards in the outfield, and in many cases, there are double-deck billboards. Things like Malinoff Silverman Funeral Home, hit this sign and win a free coffin, that sort of thing. And if the ball hits the lower sign, then it's still in play, If it hits the upper sign, it's a home run. But both signs are white. And so when you have a ball that is white headed to that signage, you completely lose it. It's a mess. Like I said, I just screwed up so many calls. There was one in particular. This was maybe my worst call ever. This was my first year, actually like my first month. And we were in Rochester, New York at Old Silver Stadium. And my partner was Dan Horde. And it was a long fly ball to deep left field. It disappears in the double-deck white billboards. I think I see it bounce. So I say, and it is off the wall. And then Dan is shaking his head. No, 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 no. And I went, whoop, check that. He makes the catch for the out. And then Dan is like shaking his head no. And he twirls his finger. So I think that means, oh, Wait, but the ball is in play, and uh, he's heading to second base, and Dan is shaking his head no again. Apparently, and I didn't realize it at the time, I had only been doing this for like three weeks, but twirling your finger in the air means a home run. So it was like, uh, wait, oh, check that. It's gone. It's a home run. (laughs) That was my call. But like I say, it happens Uh, Many times I've said, and uh, now Jackson is throwing up in the bullpen. Or one time I had uh, Thornton is standing at second with his hands on his fists. You know, you, you make mistakes. And when I was with the Seattle Mariners, what I would do for the postgame show, we had a feature, the Makita Power Tools play of the game. And I would play back the highlight of the game. And if I had a screw up that night, that's what I would play back because, you know, I figure, what the heck, you might as well own it. 
obviously it makes me seem like a good sport. And I would play it back and then I would go, Jesus, how did they hire that guy? When I was in the big leagues, I was interviewing Wally Joyner. This was when I was with Baltimore and he was, I think, still with the Angels. And what I wanted to say to him was much success for the rest of the season. And instead, I said, much sex for the rest of the season. And he nodded and said, okay, I sure hope so. <laughs> and, and I didn't even realize that until it got on the air. Every announcer has one or two of those. And one way that announcers get trapped is by looking down at their score sheet or at their statistics. And I don't remember the gentleman's name, but he was broadcasting for the Cleveland Indians for only one season. And I think this call is the reason why there was not a second season. There was a runner at second base and Al Oliver was at the plate. And he's looking down at his statistics, and uh, Al Oliver uh, is hitting 225, uh, you know, on Tuesday nights against left-handers, whatever. And he looks up, and he sees the ball flying into center field. So what he says, and again, this is TV, so people are watching this. What he says is, there's a line drive to center field, base hit, and the runner comes around to score. Well, what had happened was that the pitcher spun around and threw to second base and threw wildly, and so he threw it into center field. But the audience heard line drive to center. Yeah, that was pretty much the end of his career. After I left the Syracuse Chiefs, there was a guy calling the games, and they were in, I believe, Omaha, and this announcer is looking down at his stat sheet, and then he looks up and he goes, oh, my God, there's a crazed madman running on the field with scissors. And then his partner, Dan Horde, had to go, no, that's the team trainer. So that's pretty embarrassing. I worked with Jerry Coleman when I was with the San Diego Padres. And Jerry, of course, known for his malaprops. And we all have them. But my favorite as I was sitting next to Jerry, and we were in the Houston Astrodome, and this was his call. There's a swing and a fly ball to center field. Foul. What? Apparently he misjudged the ball, thinking it was going out to center field instead of straight back. So fly ball to center field. Foul. One of my favorite announcers of all time, maybe yours too, is Harry Carey. Harry Carey, and when he was calling the Cubs, oh man, those last couple of years were a little rugged. When a guy strikes out, usually what happens is the catcher will then throw the ball to third base, and the third baseman will throw it around the diamond to the first baseman, and the first baseman will throw it back to the pitcher. Watch that the next time you go to a ball game. So <laughs> Harry's calling the game, and Steve Stone is his partner. Steve is the one who told me this story. A guy strikes out, but Harry goes, there's a swing and a ground ball to third, over to second for one, and on to first base for a double play. And Steve had to go, uh, no, Harry, he, he struck out. They were throwing the ball around the infield. Oh, Harry also had one where there's a line drive to center field and, hey, there's some guy scoring from third. 
<laughs> some guy. Well, when I was with the Padres and we would go into Chicago and I would bring a radio and I would listen to the other broadcasters sometimes when I was not calling innings myself. Usually, it was fun to hear them call the game, to hear their perspective. And I'll be quite honest, a lot of times I would just steal information from them. They would say, well, I was talking to George Bell around the batting cage, and he's using a 32-ounce bat now instead of a 33-ounce bat. Like, oh, okay, I didn't know that. And so when I come on in the next inning, and I'm saying, well, you know, I was at the batting cage talking to George Bell, my good buddy George Bell, and uh, he was uh, talking about uh, using uh, a 32-ounce bat these days. Yeah, I would just shamelessly steal from these guys. Anyway, I was listening to Harry Carey calling the game, and there was a center fielder for the Chicago Cubs named Brian McRae, and this was Harry's call. There's a high fly ball to center field, and Carmen McRae makes the catch. (laughs) I was on the floor. I was also with Dave Niehaus in Seattle, And let's just say Dave mispronounced this player's name when he hit a home run. His call was supposed to be home run, Jeff Kent. But that's not the way it came out on the air. Meanwhile, all these announcers that I have mentioned, they're all in the Hall of Fame. So like I said, it happens to everybody. Uh, My heart goes out to Joe Buck, the much maligned Joe Buck, although I think he does a really good job. But he was saying once that he was up in the booth and after a game he was interviewing, I think, Tony Womack. And Tony Womack was being hugged by a woman. And Joe said to him, so, Tony, uh, you're there with your mom. And he goes, no, that's my wife. Ouch. It happens to all of us. Coming back with more Hollywood and Levine right after this. And that's a wrap. If you have any comments or questions, I would love to hear from you. My email address is hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Ken Levine, or you can follow me on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine, although I plug that every week and nobody follows me. I have some really good photos up there, Hollywood and Levine. Our thanks as always to Adam and Susie Meister Butler, to Howard Hoffman and John Wolfert, and to you for listening. I'll be back next week with more. Bye-bye. Hollywood. 